Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 51st episode, we have artist Michelle Forsyth, who talks to us from Pullman, Washington, where she has a really expansive studio practice. We talk at great length about the techniques and processes that she utilizes in creating a very organized and very intricate kind of approach to art making. It's very interesting, and we hope that you enjoy that interview. Of course, if you've never heard of Studio Break before, we have a variety of podcasts available at studiobreak.com. All of them you can check out for free, and we provide slideshows of the artist's work as well as links to their websites, so please go ahead and peruse. Again, if you look over on the left, you can see there's an archive feature, and you can simply go month by month and check out all the podcasts that you miss. Of course, if you like any of the podcasts, we hope that you would share it. One easy way to do that is to go to the iTunes store, subscribe, and tell all your friends about it. Let them know. Tell your teachers. Tell your peers, whomever. We'd really appreciate it. Of course, if you'd like to reach out, you can find us on Twitter. Just follow us at Studio Break on Twitter, and you can also like us on Facebook. Again, on Facebook, we provide up Updates. So if there's a past guest that has a new exhibition coming out, you can find it there. Or if we have a preview of an upcoming guest, you want to check out their website, we'll put it up there. Contests, all sorts of good stuff. So make sure to like us there. Follow us on Twitter. And, of course, if you want to find out anything more about me, your host, you can check it out again on that Studio Break page. If you look on the left, there's that little hyperlink for me, David Linaway, your host. Go check out some of my paintings and check it out at davidlinaway.com. All right. That's enough of my yapping. Here we go. Michelle Forsyth, stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. I'm happy to be joined by Michelle Forsyth. How are you this morning? Great. And you're coming to us from uh, Pullman, Washington. Is that correct? That's correct. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, could you just give us a little bit of a background so that we have a, a little bit of an idea, maybe start by uh, where you're at and what you're doing out there, and then we can kind of go from there. Yeah, so I live out in Pullman, and I teach here at Washington State University. I've worked here for about 11 years, and uh, I teach painting. I run the painting area. I also teach drawing, and I teach graduate seminar. I work here as a graduate advisor for the entire graduate program, and that provides me the opportunity to really uh, kind of meet one-on-one with them, and, you know, our studios are set up in such a way, the school gives us studios, and we're interspersed with the grad students, so it's much like a residency. I moved here from New York, and so I thought I was going to come out here for one year, and then I ended up being here for 11 years. But it's really beautiful here. The landscape is in the Palouse, which is rolling green hills, and we're situated near uh, uh, Hell's Canyon, and, you know, where Evil Knievel did his famous jump, I guess. <laughs> so if anybody wants to kind of situate that sure. um, geographically, that's near where I am. Well, and are you originally from New York then? No, I went to grad school at Rutgers, and uh, I moved from B.C. I grew up in B.C. on a sailboat on a Gulf Island, an island of 200 people. I lived on the sailboat for about six years. So that was a pretty informing experience in my life because we were surrounded by, you know, a beautiful landscape. Was it also then like an experience in, in the sense that there's not thousands and thousands of people to Chicago and you can't go anywhere without, you know, tons and tons of people? Is that is that something that you kind of, I don't know, think about in, in terms of a way that might inform the way that you look at those things that you choose to interact with and make art about? Um, sure, to some extent, but I think there also is a relationship to the city in the sense that when you live in a small space of a sailboat and you live in New York, you are living in really small quarters. So I guess my impulse to organize come, comes from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my experience as a child on the boat, we would go up Desolation Sound and by the name of it, you know, there's not 
a lot of people around. And so we'd go to places where you could only reach by boat. And we'd be up there for months at a time. So that kind of space where I'm immersed in an environment that's completely um, sensual, I guess, is something that informs my work. Well, it makes a lot of sense. And it's it's an interesting thing where, you know, we were just talking about um, when you're learning about that kind of process that an artist has. And for some reason, that seems so spot on, you know, with the level of intricacy and the way that you kind of investigate things, or at least describe it in, in the, the words on your website. So were you always kind of drawn to, to making things? Yes, my sister is also a painter, and she did her MFA at University of Calgary, and she lives up in Edmonton, but we grew up together on the boat, and when we moved on the boat, it was in third grade for me and second grade for her, and so we had this garage sale where we had to sell everything that we owned, which was a pretty traumatic experience, and we only had one bunk and one little box at the end of our bed that we called our busy boxes, which is essentially like a file folder. And so the only thing that would fit in there was papers and pencils. And so we would sit there making drawings all day and having drawing contests. And so we both kind of veered in the same direction. Sure. Well, and it's always interesting because there's such a variety of ways that people come to it. Um, did you, did you decide then kind of have that, idea in mind that one day you're gonna you're gonna do this for for a living i always had that idea in mind i know some people come to it later or aren't sure as a child i was really interested in mathematics and particularly algebra and i had this book that was islamic patterns and it was a coloring book and it was really thick you can still get it i think it's a dover book and I had filled it, the entire thing in with colored pencils. And when I look at my practice now, there's some strange similarities to, you know, that obsessiveness and working with color that I doing when I was a child. Well, and so then did you did you take the, the traditional kind of like series of art classes when you were going through high school and, and grade school and that then? I did take art in high school and I studied some classes at the local um, art school in Victoria. I lived in Victoria for my last couple years of high school and um, it was called the Victoria College of Art then and uh, I took some night classes there in painting. And so you just decide, where did you decide to go to undergrad and, and to start that, that endeavor? Sorry, my undergrad was really interesting because I went to this little college called Camosun College in Victoria and the program is amazing because of the fact that uh, they cover all of your art supplies and it, it was a two-year immersive program where you do everything from film, animation, performance, art history, uh, but they, they cover everything and the reason for that is that they had a past president who uh, made some kind of law in the books that said students should only have to pay for textbooks while well, he wasn't thinking about art making and how much that cost. Right. I think I paid for paint, but all film, cameras, uh, sculpture materials, photographic paper for two years was covered, and the tuition was only about $500 a semester. So I did my first two years there. And as you might imagine, there's a pretty long waiting list to get in. Sure. <laughs> and it really developed my work ethic because at Camosun, people are working all the time and the classes are structured in such a way that they go from nine in the morning till four at night. And then you stay afterwards until, you know, 11 or 12 working on projects. Well, it seems that kind of immersive uh, environment of, of kind of having all different types of things to, to kind of experiment with was was something that was probably also kind of encouraged there. So did, did you wind up incorporating a lot of those things into, I don't know, what you wound up doing afterwards? 
Yeah, so after Camosun, I studied at UVic, University of Victoria, and I didn't actually study painting, although I identify as a painter. I studied photography and I studied sculpture. And so I was making these paintings per se, but the paintings kind of developed or included aspects of sculpture and photography in them, or their primary means was, they hung on the wall, but they were sculptures and photographs. Well, and, and what, what were the, the content or the subject behind these works and, and what you're interested in early on? Early on, I was just collecting things and putting together things in kind of random ways and trying to, what I thought back then was to make a place where the viewer couldn't land to confuse them a little bit. Uh, it's radically different from the way I think now. Uh, I studied at, at UVic with Maury Baden, who actually Jessica Stockholder studied with early on in her career. So uh, Maury was a pretty big influence and he was always about um, not pinning anything down, I guess, or he would play with your head a little bit. And so I developed this kind of direction where I was just collecting things and putting things together. And in a way I was doing it to to piss him off, making work that he didn't appreciate or he didn't, you know, if he didn't like something, then I'd include it in the my BFA show. Right, right. <laughs> um, well, and it seems interesting, too, then, because I guess the, the way that you think of um, maybe somebody that might come into undergrad and has always been or they've always been like a intense, you know, figurative drawer, and they're kind of set in this very particular way of working. It seems like that background also would kind of allow for a real exploration in, in the in the subjects that you're kind of talking about in terms of just collecting and trying different materials out and, and all of those things. Were, were there anything that you were kind of particularly drawn to and maybe combining photography and, and sculpture at the time, or were they separate? Well, I think that photography had a very major impact on me and still does and not for the material aspect of it but for the conceptual side of it because photography and the writings on photography has influenced much of you know 20th century ideas in our criticism and the way we look at the world um, in terms of photographic truth or how do you document something? What is a document? How do you categorize something? The typo typology. Uh, those were things that really interested me. And so that combined with being a painter and working in series, a lot of those ideas I brought into my work and particularly into more recent work, the 100 Drawings Projects and Ostinatos they stand from a photographic documentation, uh, a process of going back and finding places that were previously photographically documented, but then I've re-documented them photographically and then transferred them into paintings. When did you start doing, kind of employing that process too? Because I would imagine that, you know, you had talked about how things have changed dramatically since, you know, undergrad, like it is for most everybody. Um, mm -hmm. But what, what kind of work then did you leave there with and then enter into to graduate school with? I was, after I finished undergrad, in undergrad I had this fairly large studio, so I was doing really large oil paintings and incorporating them with other items and things. But then I moved to Vancouver and I had this tiny little room that overlooked the water in English Bay, and the room was maybe 200 square feet. And so I didn't really have a lot of space to work. So what I decided to do was make these little collages that were, um, everything would fit into eight and a half by 11 protective pages and then would go into binders that would go on a shelf. And I called them my volumes. <laughs> How many, I can imagine you had like thousands of them for some reason. Maybe that's a big number, but a lot. I had a lot of them, and then I had my volumes were my 
one was had my documentation slides at that time and then another one had show cards and invites and things like that and then another one had the work and then another one had these little uh, uh, pages that you put negatives and slides into and then they had little scraps of paper and the collages were all gridded so I was relying on the grid but then I would take the little scraps of one by one inch grids and I'd stick them on top of other pages in the collages so that they were these kind of ruptured uh, images that were taken from art books. I was cutting apart art books at that time and then collaging them on with colored squares to kind of rupture that surface a little bit. So did you kind of turn that into a way to explore different different ideas that you had, different concepts about the photograph like you were talking about before and the way that you're kind of, you know, exploring that idea of reassembling them or kind of, you know, reconfiguring them? Well, I see it more as, remember when we talked about growing up on the boat and experiencing nature? I distrust the photographic source and so through painting i see painting as a more visceral kind of activity where you're interacting one-on-one whereas a photograph kind of documents a moment in time and freezes time in such a i mean there are exceptions um like sugimoto really interesting photographer to me um particularly with his his uh cinemas that are exposed for the entire film but uh, painting for me was a way to take that photographic source and then kind of exploit the time it takes to do it and and start from that photographic source but then slow it down and kind of put my physicality into the image and rupture it in other ways so that I kind of see it as this way of working where I'm faithfully being true to the photograph until a certain point where where I throw it away and the painting becomes something else. And then I just kind of linger in what's happening in the painting. I kind of see that as a kind of point of detachment. And I had always used the photographic source in my work until recently when I went to document uh, Swiss Air Flight 111 and I went out to just outside of, um, in Peggy's Cove, outside of Halifax, and I went to document it, and it was completely fogged over, and all my photographs are gray, and there was nothing there. And so I thought that that was really interesting and started doing these kind of gray paintings without any source, and then that led me into a whole other body of work, the dark watercolors. Sure, sure. And again, it's the the newest stuff, and is that also what you're going to be showing coming up? I'm working on a couple of things for the show, some dark watercolors. You can see one behind me here, um, where I put layers and layers of brightly colored hues down, so really expensive pigments like quinopridones and cobalts and ultramarines and I just keep layering them until they cancel themselves out so they become this really dark space. And then I take colored pencils and I zip lines across it. And the lines are really colorful, really bright. And when you stand back, they optically mix and they completely disappear. But I have fluorescent colors in there. And so I'm getting really interested in in opticality and how things kind of disappear as you move away, but then up close they become more apparent. And that has happened all in all of my work to some extent where you have the uh, different levels of viewing experiences. James Elkins talks about it as myopic viewing, and um, I'm pretty interested in that space between when you're making something, you're always at hands distance apart from it, but when you view something, generally you're further away. So I like to get my viewers engaged in coming in close and seeing what the work looks like from, you know, a myopic kind of perspective. How did you, how did you decide to start 
documenting these 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 places that you know most of us are again going to understand through that second hand you know kind of historical photograph or you know you make mention of utilizing sourced images from the internet and I'd imagine from books and that but where did that that begin that that process or that idea yeah that's a really good question because in graduate school I was working on making paintings from those grid collages and they were paintings of uh, royalty um, Louis the 14th or whatever and then I started losing those squares and after graduate school I was thinking about the fact that I was making beautiful paintings of beautiful things but at the same time I was looking at the internet and I was in these sites that were um, that fetishized violence um, because I thought that they were a little bit disturbing so I started making I was again in a situation where I didn't have a studio and I started making these little petty points from these uh, images that I found on rotten.com and newbridge.com and I built them pixel by pixel with little stitches and petty points and so that led me into working on this body of work, which was the trauma paintings, which was built up of different brush strokes of pixel by pixel, slowing images down from the internet. And uh, then I questioned that work because I have this mechanism in my head that is constantly questioning what I'm doing. And uh, I thought, well, I'm just exploiting the images the same way that they're doing online to some extent, even though I'm trying to slow them down and kind of give us a place to look at them. But then I thought, how can I do this in other ways without exploiting individuals and kind of making room for myself as a participant? And so I thought, I have all these images of different disaster sites that I've collected in archive of, of old historic photographs. So I went on this trip to the Midwest and I started in Chicago, actually, and started doing these photographs from the sites. I think the first one I did was uh, um, on one of the rivers, there was an overturned boat, the Eastland disaster. And even though they're not in that order on in the work, uh, I went out there and then I was taking photographs of the sites and I wanted to try to capture them in other ways than is typically remembered. So instead of, you know, presenting a photograph of the plaque on the bridge, I decided to, you know, take images of the sky and images of uh, the buildings around and of the water. And I started documenting these places that could really be anywhere that were kind of ubiquitous kind of images that in a sense were you know in film when you have a film and it's in between cut shots that set the tone you know like a puddle on the floor and then you see the water dripping into it mm -hmm. or on the ground outside like those kind of moments in looking where you're not looking at what you're supposed to be looking at, but you're looking at something that's on the side. So I started getting interested in those kinds of spaces, like a cloud overhead or something that kind of subverted that impulse to document something accurately. And so that's kind of where those came from. One of the things that's so interesting to me about it is the way that you talk about you know, taking something like, like digital that, that everyone thinks of as being something that's going to tremendously speed up a process and to really kind of painstakingly kind of slow it down and, and break it apart and explore it in a, a different way. And I, I think that's something that's, you know, really very interesting. Um, is there a particular way that you then try to had tried to kind of work from, from those photos? And, and you kind of described this a little bit, but I mean, it almost seems like you're I don't know when, when you're, you know, I almost think about when I drive past, um, on the highway and I see everybody slows down to see an accident. It's almost like catching some of the peripheral around that. Yeah. You know, and some of that kind of almost gathering a sense of the atmosphere of where these, these locations are. Exactly. 
And also, I did a series of work of using text from newspapers the day after, which I punched into white sheets of paper. And those were just eyewitness accounts. And those conjure up a kind of image in your head when you look at them, but they're almost invisible because they're just punctured paper. And when they hang on the wall or when I try to photograph them, they're really difficult to um, see. Well, and, and so one of the things that's interesting to me then too, and, and something that I'm sure in some of the, some of the older work that's much more colorful that you might get, how do, how do you deal with um, the color in that work? Because, you know, certainly um, the idea of tragedy isn't something that you typically necessarily associate with, um, you know, vibrant colors. And especially when you're really examining them on that, level that you're making them with, which is really small, you know, it's very colorful. Mm -hmm. how, well, how does that relationship work? I guess? I guess there's a twofold answer to that. And the first one would be, um, I think of them as memorials. And typically when you see memorials like roadside memorials or memorials that have been put into fences, you know, with the plastic flowers or uh, flowers on a grave site, the impulse tends to be very bric-a-brac and kind of punchy and bright and uh, built of plastic and detritus and things all mashed together. You know, one of the things I can think of is after Diana died, you know, all of those flowers in front of the um, Buckingham Palace, you know, that impulse to kind of like grieve and put things in into the public space to show your grief tends to be um, one that's more colorful. And then another um, idea behind that is that uh, when I'm making that work and working in the paintings, they kind of start out less colorful from, from uh, watercolors, the first level is watercolor, and then I uh, either usually screen print or I would screen print over top of those patterns and then paint into them with color. And it's, it's also akin to what I was talking about where I leave the image behind and I sort of embellish and embellish and embellish and then there's a certain point where I can like throw in some really radical color into them and the color sits there and it doesn't seem as radical as at first. Uh, in terms of color, I'm very influenced by Ogden Rood, who was a color theorist that kind of came around the time of Chevrul and Ogden Rood did this book called Modern Chromatics where he looked at color wheels and uh, true complementary colors. So I try to, or it, it kind of stands, my interest in color stems from him in that by setting up true complementary colors together, you get this most vibrant effect as possible. And it started out as, for me, mimicking the screen or screen space, RGB, you know, color mix in space. But then I tried to get as bright reaction as possible optically. So that's kind of where that color um, interest came from. And, and too, especially the, I don't know, could you just, I guess maybe describe um, the process too in, 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 the, in the kind of wall assemblage kind of resolution of these too. Because, you, you know, you had described the, the grid and how you're putting these together, but could you go into that a little bit too? Yeah, uh, the ostinatos pieces were an offshoot from the 100 drawings. Essentially, they kind of go together. I work in a lot of different ways at the same time. But those pieces require a great deal of organization because each piece, for example, I'll use one piece as an example, and that's the Tacoma Narrows Bridge disaster, which is the big one. It's about 20 feet by 6 feet. And I'll actually be installing that at the Muskegon Museum of Art next year, um, 2014. But uh, 
when I made the piece, what I do is I will, I took the photograph that I took of Andy Lyons and then I gridded it all out in Illustrator and blew it up so it was basically one pixel per inch. So each color is blown up to one pixel per inch. Then in Illustrator, I've gone in and I've put these Bezier curves on each pixel. And then I print it out in sections. And then I cut that first section out and put a pin in it. And then I have all this color aid paper and papers I've collected and papers I've screen printed myself. And I essentially embellish each one. There's over 10,000 individual pins in that piece. So each one has about five or six hand-cut layers of paper and then beads on top. And then I fix them on the pins, and then I put these pins into uh, one-foot squares of blue foam material so that it temporary holds the, temporarily holds them because then when I get to the space, I install them one pin at a time. So in order to do the grid and install them, what I have to do is take a string and make a basic one-foot-by-one-foot grid structure on the wall, and then I have this template with little tiny holes in it that I take a ruler and I just go down, and it hits all the holes, and then I work and put tap 10,000 pins into the wall. Obviously, it can be problematic when the wall is difficult, um, and I've had to actually drill each one with a little um, jewelry drill bit before, which takes a long time. But the piece that I'm talking about takes a week to install, basically eight hours a day with another person. And is that something that you usually then do install yourself, your, your own pieces? Yes. And I stopped making that work. Uh, so there's no more of those cut paper pieces. Um, so, but I'm still installing them and reinstalling them. And every time I have to install them and take them down, I have to go through each piece of paper and fix them because when you pull them off the wall, sometimes the paper gets bent. So I have to reprint them, cut them. Well, and it seems like, too, then some of those other works then also get informed by some of the ones that we haven't talked about, like the, the Hunter Drawing series, you know, the way that you're kind of exploring those those formal aspects in there might be things that kind of influence, I guess, the, I guess the way that you're playing around with it as well. And also one thing we briefly mentioned at the beginning was a cathartic process, uh, the process of making for me is a cathartic one. And I do work in the studio pretty much independently by myself um, in that very traditional sense that you open up this space for self-contemplation. Uh, I do that and I don't really listen to anything while I do that. So I enter this space with the work that's really one-on-one -on -one with the work. Uh, Albeit, I do sometimes hire studio assistants when I'm in a crunch because, as you might imagine, this work has to be planned out way in advance and I can't really, you know, do things last minute because of the amount of labor that is involved in making them. Just to be involved in a process like that, I would imagine the way that you're able to strategize and come up with new ways of keeping everything planned out or, you know, executed is something that's always evolving as well. Mm -hmm. And I am a knitter, so when I'm not making work in the studio, <laughs> which seems kind of strange because it is a similar process, but when I, I remember I had this friend in Toronto and she uh, mentioned or asked me if my painting was like knitting. And I said, no, it's not like knitting. And, you know, I work all over the place and I don't go from one side to another side and then back like a typewriter. Uh, but lately I've been thinking about that, that comment and I have been knitting quite a lot more lately. And I have been 
knitting my work in a way. I mean, I've been weaving too, so that idea of zipping back and forth from one side to another side of the piece I find really interesting. And I've always been interested in the performativity of the work or making the work. And at first it was just thinking about that kind of nature of performing the work in the studio as a private act uh, where I formed an identification with the site or thought of them as memorials, but more and more recently I'm getting interested in in performance or performativity. I call it performativity because I don't think of myself as a performance artist or I don't really expose people to that aspect of the work yet, but I'm pretty interested in what happens in that playing out of making the work and uh, the difference between what happens in the studio as opposed to what happens in the gallery. And recently, my show in Brooklyn just came down yesterday, was the last day. Uh, but there was a mural on the wall that I painted in the gallery in the 24 hours before the show because there was a painting that wasn't big enough to hold the wall. And doing something like that or performing, putting up the, the pin pieces is a really important aspect of the work. And I am kind of reluctant to think about or the reactions of the work, oh, that takes so much time, is not an interesting conversation to me. But right. the space that you engage in, which becomes one of bliss, that's more akin to running, you know, distance running, which when I was a kid, I was a distance runner. Um, so entering that state of bliss while working, I find more interesting than just, oh, that, sh that took a long time. But how, how did the installations play into um, the other bodies of work that you have? Installation is very difficult for me because I've always kind of made work for the wall in school and thinking about painting as something that hangs on the wall. But the installation is a space that I feel like I can explore that material a little bit more fully. Just what is, what is it that paper does? I've worked on paper for so long and with paper, but also thinking about bent wire. For example, the, the piece that was um, up in Maine, the um, canopy piece, was made by making eye pins is a jeweler's technique. I have a friend in New York that I stay with and she's a jewelry designer and she taught me how to bend eye pins and I started putting the paper on eye pins and then some of the pin pieces in the wall have got really long pins that are head pins with uh, beads glued on the end and that is taken from jewelry techniques. So I'm always really interested in incorporating other skills or other processes and the idea of making jewelry something bent over and over again making chains of things or um, catching the eye differently because jewelry is meant to kind of you know catch the eye or it can you know the kind of bling of things and I have incorporated a lot of um, different kinds of beads that are cut glass so that they do sparkle as you walk by, and the pin pieces have an element where you can't see this in the static images, but because they're not really affixed, they flutter as people walk by, and during the show, they kind of move to the back of the pin and kind of, you know, change optically as the show goes on. So that kind of material space is very different from one of painting. How did you wind up then making that transition to, I guess, the most recent stuff where you're really moved away from the image, or at least working from photographs in that regards? Mm -hmm. And I'm doing, I'm doing the dark watercolors at the same time as I'm doing this series taken from my husband's shirts where I'm using the actual shirts and making reproductions of them. And it happened 
kind of all of a sudden where I think it had something to do with getting tenure and not having to worry about my trajectory. But not only that, but I had a bunch of galleries that represented me and most of them all folded at the same time. And I just felt this overwhelming sense of freedom where I didn't have to make it for anybody else and I was just going to make what I pleased. And so I just started coming in the studio and lately I've just been trying to enter that space that I, I did when I was younger where you just come into the studio and say, okay, I'll close the door. What's going to happen today? You know, what's going to, what am I going to react to in the studio today and not kind of worry too much about what I've done before or things that are going on in my head, you know, trying to get rid of things that people say, you know, you come to the studio and uh, I, I can't remember which artist said it, maybe Sola Wit, but you come into the studio and people's voices drop away one by one until you're left alone. And so that kind of space for me, I've been trying to cultivate and see what I can uh, push myself to do not really push myself to do, but enter that space where I'm kind of open to all possibility. And therefore, the the work has been that kind of gray space. It's been about um, diving into that, but also looking at that domestic space of home and what's around me every day, instead of going out in the world and traveling to all these places. I've been thinking about what happens when you lock the door and come in. Uh, there's an artist that kind of influenced that idea for me, and that's Haruki Sawa, who did all these little amazing uh, drawings around his apartment where he locked himself in his room and did these animations in in the domestic space of his own um, apartment. And, and so that idea of just kind of locking the door, see, seeing what happened, uh, and my husband went away on sabbatical and he went to Europe for a few months. And so I didn't entirely lock myself in the, in at home, but I decided, okay, I'm not going to go shopping for food. I'm going to see how much the, how much food will last me, how, le- you know, little I can go shopping and just kind of immerse myself in that space of working at the studio at home. So that's kind of partially where that came from. Well, and he, just as a slight tangent, I think has a fantastic taste in, in plaid shirts, <laughs> I would also say. But, but I mean, it, it also kind of evokes that, especially that, I, that idea that you kind of describe in a, in a way, you know, you're describing prior to this, you know, these, these kind of tragic scenes, but in a, in a way you're, you're kind of talking about this intimacy that's really kind of takes in a, a different direction and a different, just a different kind of interest. What are the, I guess, the, the ways that you've been kind of working through those? Uh, there's some small plaids that are, uh, I call the series letters for Kevin because I started doing them as gouache studies, 10 by 10 inches, and they were verbatim as close as I could get to the plaids, kind of like a um, 2D design project in, in a way, um, because they are done in, in gouache, and I had to achieve a transparency effect in the gouache to make them look like they were um, woven plaids. So... Then those 10 by 10s, I uh, blew them up into these acrylic paintings, and I've just been exploring making them in a number of ways. But the reason why I called them letters for Kevin is because I was only working for my husband's shirts, and then I had a colleague come to work, and he was wearing this fabulous plaid shirt. And I said, you know, can I borrow that shirt so I can paint it? And I did. But it was all wrong. I just couldn't identify with it. And that's when I decided, well, these pieces are really about that kind of intimate space of being with somebody that I know, of seeing all his shirts in the laundry, um, 
not that I do all the laundry. I don't really think of myself as a housewife, and um, I'm not really kind of that domestic person in a certain way, so it's strange that I'm doing work about this, but um, they became more of a, the idea of a love letters to my husband, and particularly when he was gone, making uh, paintings of his shirts when he wasn't around was this almost um, obsessive habit of trying to recapture something that was missing from my life at that moment. Um, and that's when I started doing the crumpled shirt piles and whatnot. But I had, I did take that further and decided to buy a floor loom and attempt to weave copies of the fabric in his shirts. And interestingly, you know, my husband's real, a, quite a reserved, quiet person, and I'm not really that person. I'm kind of more loud and gregarious, and, and he really feels that these shirts are, you know, putting him out there in that kind of public way that he feels a little bit uneasy about. They, I'm reverse engineering this fabric that you, on one sense, if you didn't know Kevin, could look like, you know, just the bolts of fabric that comes, that gap shirts are made from. But I mean, the fabric's really nice. I'm using, you know, cottons and, and bamboos and things like that. But then when you know Kevin, there's this level of strangeness to the work where my husband only wears a certain gamut of color. He only wears grays. And that's kind of where that link from the gray paintings sort of filtered into starting to make the shirt paintings. But he's gradually kind of added color to his palette so that now there's reds in there and there's some greens in there. And then the small watercolors are not taken from his shirts but taken from online plaid generators and uh, apps that make plaid for my phone. And so those are kind of potentials for shirts. So by calling it letters to Kevin, not Kevin shirts, then it kind of leaves me a little wider gamut to explore. Is this something too then that you've been exploring the, um, the, the dark the dark watercolor series um, at the same time then, and also kind of letting it inform each other. And the weaving is informing the dark watercolors because I'm stitching back into the dark watercolors and the lines that are stitched are often, you often can't see the lines um, because they look like they're penciled lines, colored pencils. Uh, so there'll be a zip line. Even when I have a, uh, a knot in the front of the dark watercolors, it disappears for some strange reason. And it's really kind of vulgar and bold when you go up to it, but it disappears as you stand back. And then the Kevin shirt paintings are doing these really weird optical things that I didn't anticipate because it doesn't happen in the fabric. But when you paint these um, plaids and blow them up, they become very Bridget Riley. You know, it's hard to focus on them. Well, it's and it's interesting because they're so optical. It's an interesting relationship between the two, I guess. Yeah, and the most optical one is the one that you would think would be the least optical painting because it's this big painting and it's got kind of a seam where they don't match up on my website and it's uh, just black and gray and it's got fairly big um, squares of color, you know, at least four inches by four inches. And even if I try to hold my iPhone in front of it, it has about 15 little um, auto-adjust come up, and I've never seen that on an iPhone before. So even the iPhone's having troubles. You talked about, you know, you know that idea of seeing something as a whole and then also really walking up on, t on it to investigate it. And I would imagine then that all of the layers and the colors underneath are also going to vibrate in a way that you don't see in, initially from that, that large scale. Oh, yeah, that's true. And actually something that I forgot to mention is when I work on those paintings that are from Kevin's shirts, I only mix a little bit of color at a time 
and then do a few squares and then I'll remix the color as I come to it. So in fact, the color is not consistent through the whole painting and I don't use rulers for or tape to mask the edges of the, the squares of color. So when you see them online, they look like they're probably taped, but when you see them close up, they're not. The edges are really uh, messy. Kind of like, well, Mondrian's a little bit neater, but I just love the way when you see a Mondrian up close and you see that paint stroke that comes right to the edge of that, you know, he's put down a vertical first and then he's coming in with horizontal brushwork. And that kind of intimacy of space and the fact that you can see the hand is something that's embedded in those pieces. Could you talk a little bit about what you're doing with this show that you have coming up? You know, some of the things we can look forward to seeing. Yeah, I've been working on a couple of different things, and we haven't fully fleshed out uh, what is going to be in the show, but the show in New York at Muller and Pollard is uh, a show for artists using the grid. It's called Grid Graph, and so I've been working on the dark watercolors. I've been working on these... Um, small kind of gouache studies that are like the dark watercolors where I zip lines across and gouache in both directions and essentially weave kind of gray spaces. And then I've been working on these other pieces that are painted in uh, weaving patterns that come from weaving books. And they are very uh, intense and very... Um, intimate in the sense that each square in the weaving pattern is 0.125 of an inch. So I have to make them with jeweler's glasses on in order to see where the edge of the line. But I've been working on those for months, just kind of on the side of everything. As you said, I, I really always keep busy. And it's interesting too, with the, the weaving, um, how long have you been utilizing that in, in, in these most recent paintings? Because I think that would be something that would be, oh, I mean, a huge, it's just like a brand new tool or a brand new, you know, thing to have in your box, you know? Yeah, exactly. I learned how to weave this summer, and I decided I'm, the dark watercolors started looking like weaving, so I thought I'm going to teach myself how to weave. And I went and bought myself a floor loom, set it up, and just proceeded to watch YouTube videos and taught myself from YouTube. I, I'm completely self-taught, so I'm probably doing some, some things wrong. I know the edges aren't perfect yet, but I've just learned about floating selvages, which essentially are two pieces of um, thread that you run on either side of the weaving so that when you weave a twill pattern, it's always catching the edge. So... That's going to be my next um, step is to try to get that that twill to catch the edge of the weaving because, you know, in plain weave, I've been weaving two kinds of weaving, plain weave and twill so far. And so in plain weave, you just have warp and weft going in different directions, just like a regular piece of fabric. But in twill, it's like your jean material. Twill um, kind of drapes nicer and it's... Uh, made with a four-harness loom, so every fourth um, warp is pulled up, and you put the weft underneath that, and then the, every, the second one, and, you know, the sixth or fifth one, and, you know, so on, so that you get that kind of diagonal um, pattern on there. So I've been really interested in the patterns that weaving can make, and so these... Uh, pieces that I've been doing based on weaving patterns are actually four harness crepe patterns, which I haven't tried to do yet, but that's kind of a next step too. Well, and I have a feeling that just because of the, the intense studio practice, I guess required, you know, in terms of hours and time, um, I would imagine then that the, I was going to ask you that you know, is there a bit of time that you have to kind of rest and, and just work on your work? But it seems like you're probably always kind of balancing out all of those responsibilities at the same time, you know, producing and, and showing it. It's true. Um, I kind of consider my downtime to be time that I work out. Picking up tennis, 
And so for me, I need something really physical to counterbalance the kind of myopic, you know, intense spaces that I have between my eyes and my fingertips in the studio. So on the side, I kind of just love those big sweeping gestures of physical activity. Less, you know, a lot of people think that, oh, you're always working, you're always working. When do you have that downtime to contemplate? And I do go to formal meditation. Um, I have a group that I go to, but I think of the practice of making as one of the meditative space. So even though I'm engaged in activity all the time, for me, I don't know, I feel like it completes me when I'm always busy, busy. Is there anything else that, that's coming up that we can kind of look forward to, to seeing more? Yeah, I have a bunch of things coming up. And uh, one thing in particular is that I have a two-person show at the Penticton Art Gallery this summer in May with a colleague of mine, Chris Watts. And Chris Watts also works using the grid. So um, that's coming up this summer. Uh, I have a show that's been traveling for the past year and a half called Paper Cuts, curated by Rennie Gower at, from uh, VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University. And um, that's up in Florida. Uh, and currently it's in Florida, but that's traveling around a bit. And this summer there's going to be an offshoot of that at um, Tinney Contemporary in Nashville. Uh, so that's just a few of the things going on right now. Excellent, excellent. All right. Well, um, again, it's a real pleasure to talk to you about your work, and you know, it's a great to have you on the the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Thanks again to Michelle for joining us today. Once again, you can see more of her work, and again, there's tons of it. So please go ahead and check it out, michelleforsif.com. And she's also on Twitter, so follow her at mm underscore forsif. Please remember that. Grid Graph featuring Michelle Forsyth and a number of artists runs February 28th through March 31st at Mullern and Pollard in New York. And again, you can find information on this blog post for that, so go check it out. As always, just a reminder, if you want to find out more about me, your host, David Linaway, and see what I do, please go to davidlinaway.com and check out all the paintings that I have. Again, I've got a show coming up at St. Louis University, a group show with a variety of artists, but there's going to be a number of paintings on display from March through April. So if you're in the St. Louis area, go ahead and check that out or contact St. Louis University for more information. But of course, I'll be posting more information as it comes. All right, again, there's a variety of ways to reach out and talk to us. So, again, if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at Studio Break on Twitter. Or if you like, you can like us on our Facebook page, Studio Break. Check it out. Again, we provide updates and previews of guests that are coming up, as well as exhibition announcements opportunities, all sorts of stuff, so please go ahead and like us there. Once again, all of our music today was found at freemusicarchive.org, where they have thousands of songs that you can download all for free, so go check it out. Next week, we have Kendra Pates returning. You might remember her episode that we had earlier with Violet Pope Projects. This time, she's talking about The House of the Seven Gables, an exhibition that she curated for University Galleries of Illinois State University. The show runs February 23rd through April 7th and opens February 23rd, 4 to 7 p.m. And I'm very excited about it. We talk about a number of the artists that are in the exhibition, how it came into being, and all the work that she put into it. And it's a really exciting, exciting thing to talk about. So please go ahead and check that out. Lastly, we remind you that we are available in iTunes, so search for Studio Break under Podcasts and subscribe. Of course, while you're there, we would love it if you left us some feedback and some comments. Again, our podcast is very friendly with anyone that listens to a wide variety of art podcasts or This American Life, Radio Lab, whatever. And again, remember when that FedEx guy stops by, remember to hound him. 
or her. Ask them all about art and contemporary art. And if they don't know anything, say, hey, you're going to be driving around that truck all day. You might as well check out an interview. So please go ahead and get it out there. Share it with everyone, folks. And we'll talk to you real soon.